Father, we do thank you that we can come and worship together, and we thank you for these great truths that we sing about, Father, that, Father, about what we believe about you, what we believe about our God and our King and our hope. And Father, as we sing those songs and as we worship you, we are also reminded of our humanity, God, just how broken we are, Father, how flawed we are. God, how much we need Christ. And Father, even I, as I stand here in a moment to proclaim your word, as my friend Zach Eswine says, I do it with the smell of coffee on my breath. God, I have to rest at night. God, we're frail. We're frail. And so I pray that as we come to your word tonight, that your word would encourage us. I pray that your word would build each of us up as we're all just flesh and bone and in desperate need of a Savior. So show us Jesus here today. Show us Christ that we might be encouraged. Show us that we are loved, we are cared for, and the gospel is good news, God, to our souls. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, we can dismiss the children for Children's Church. Uh, it's age three to seven, and so uh, you'll go with Coach Knapp or back there in the back and... We love our children, and we our prayer for them is that God would give them ears to hear God's Word, and the Gospel would change their hearts. That's what our prayer is for them, so we'll give them time to scamper out. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes for some time now. The book of Ecclesiastes is a weighty book. It's a heavy book, and it circles back around a lot. <laughs> and so uh, I wish that I could tell you today will not be another weighty day. But as your Bible might say in the little subtopic above chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, death comes to us all. Weighty. Another weighty sermon, another weighty passage from... Ecclesiastes. We won't read the passage tonight. I'm actually going to cover all of chapter 9, but I will read it as we move along through it. I don't know if the title is up there, but I changed the title, and the title is Death. Is it friend or foe? Death. Is it friend or foe? Sometimes it can be helpful in life to sort of start at the end and, and work your way backwards in order to have a better understanding of sort of the whole. You see this in the writing world as writers, as they write stories, they actually let the, the end of the story guide the whole process of the book. In fact, starting at the finish line seems sometimes to bring clarity to what is essential and what are the non-essentials in life. It makes it easier for us to access what is of value sort of gives us a sharper eye to see what is fluff and what is substantive. 
The end can help us better invest our lives. It can help us treasure the things that need to be treasured. In some ways, it can help us not sweat the small stuff. You know, probably grandparents are probably better parents than parents because they've learned in life not to sweat the small stuff. I know as a parent, there's probably a lot of things that I should let slide a lot of times and just sort of laugh about rather than scold or be impatient with my child. And I think grandparents learn that. I think as you get older in life and you come towards the end of life, your value system begins to really rise up and you gain an understanding of what really is valuable. The theologian, the philosopher, the poet, social critic, and religious author Soren Kierkegaard said this, life can only be understood backwards. In other words, if we're going to understand life, if we're going to understand the world that we live in, you've got to start at the end, death, and you've got to work your way back. The end helps us gain clarity about what we must say and about what we must leave unsaid. It sort of burns away the dross, it sort of clears away the smoke so that we see clearly And by God's grace, it sort of allows us to discover what is ultimate in life. What is it that really matters in life under the sun? What is the truth that I'm willing to live and die for? This is the echo, this is the voice of Ecclesiastes. Always bringing us to the end. The end of wisdom, the end of wealth, the end of relationships, the end of power, the end of sex, the end of toil. Ecclesiastes is always bringing us to the end of things. And yet sometimes it causes us to scratch our heads, right? It's always talking about vanity of vanities. It speaks about life in this discombobulated kind of way that makes us confused sometimes. That's what Ecclesiastes does. But there's a brilliance to the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a, there's a glory about it. And the glory is, is Ecclesiastes can bring joy and gifts and treasures out of strange and bitter places. Even death. And we've seen that as we've moved through the book there's places that you only thought you would find devastation and despair. And somehow, Ecclesiastes brings us to hope. In this book, we're often left to wonder, is, is death my friend or is death my foe? Is death a blessing or... Is it a cursing? Should I greet death with a sword in my hand or should I welcome him to sit down at my table and eat with me? Right? Ecclesiastes 7.1 The day of my death is better than the day of my birth. Really. 
Alexander Zanardi put it like this. He was a 2016 Paralympic gold medalist in Rio de Janeiro. And he said this. He was a Formula One car driver. That's when he still had both his legs. But in a severe crash, he lost both of them. After winning the gold medal, he said, I feel my life is a never-ending privilege, even my accident and what happened to me, because the greatest opportunity of my life happened when I lost my legs. That's sort of the book of Ecclesiastes. How can good come out of someone losing their legs? Or, or maybe it's like the guy, Kermit George, who's right near my hometown. I've seen him several times, but an 11 and a half foot alligator ripped his arm off one day as he was swimming in a lake after a bike ride in 1986. And it changed his life forever. And you might ask, how, how, how could that change your life forever? Because Kermit came to faith in Christ because that alligator ripped his arm off. So Ecclesiastes is like that. It brings us to these strange places like death. It brings us to these strange places like despair, but it doesn't bring us there to kill us. It brings us there to save us. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. It is difficult sometimes to understand it teaches us that some of the greatest gifts in life are found in the strangest of places. Listen at verse 1 through 3. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one, so it is with the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to it all, happens to us all. And what the preacher is struggling with is he's struggling to reconcile what he's seeing about the world, what he's seeing about life. And he's struggling to reconcile that with God's providence and God's sovereignty. That no matter what your lot in life is, that it is all under God's control. It is all under God's reign and rule. There's no bartering with God about the lot that He has given you. There's no transaction. There's no bargaining. He determines the times and the places that we should live. He sets up kingdoms. He disposes of them. He created the world. He gave it His orders. And over every detail, with a watchful eye, He takes care of it. He answers to no one, and no one can hold back His hand. He does whatever He chooses in heaven and in the dusty plains of earth. 
He is God. The point is, this famous, or the not so famous, or the educated, or the simpleton, the righteous or not, envied or hated, all experience life under the sun. Right? It doesn't matter if you're wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're poor. We all face death. We all face hardships. We all face struggles. And God's fatherly care for and love for His people does not make us immune to that. Even as Christians. Hardships and tragedies. We are not insulated from the hard jolts in life. We don't get a hall pass from God. There's no detour under the sun. We have to walk through suffering. We have to walk through trials just like the ungodly. The rich and the poor. We all come to death's end. So we do not love God because He promises us that He will deliver us from this mixed bag of life under the sun. Belonging to God, we still experience the highs and lows that this world has to offer. The sorrows. The mixed bag that we have no idea what's coming tomorrow, right? We have no idea what will happen tomorrow. So the preacher, what he's getting at here is that we don't love God, we don't follow God or obey God to escape life. You hear me? We, we don't follow God or believe in Christ because we think it will help us escape life. It'll help us escape the hard road. It'll help us escape the hard relationship or the tragedy that might come to a child or to a spouse. We don't follow God to get our best life now. We follow God because He is ultimate. We follow God because He's the treasure. We follow God because He's the point in life. And if verses 1-3 through don't convince you that we're all in the same boat, the preacher and the prostitute, we're all in the same river, we're all navigating the same waterfalls, the same log jams, the same struggle with sin. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. We're all in this life under the sun and none of us are going to get out of here without scars. And we all have them. And sometimes God does not give us explanation for why we have them or what His purpose was in them. You know, one of the things I think the church has done a poor job of 
Sometimes we want to widen the gap between those who believe in Christ and those who don't believe in Christ. And the truth is, we are probably so close together in this life under the sun that the only thing that separates us right is that Jesus covers me. Jesus covers my sin. Jesus covers my struggle with hardship. friend of mine, Al Dayhoff, I think it's one of the reasons that he has such a great ministry to those who are outside the walls of the church. He seems to focus more on what he has in common with the broken than the things that he does not. And he makes clear that Christ is his only hope. If you don't think we're all in the same boat, listen at the next few verses in Ecclesiastes, starting in 3b. Not only are we all promised all these hardships, but then listen to this. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. There's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. There are no people on planet earth who are not sinners are not great, great sinners. Then you throw in there, we're all headed for death. And yet, to some degree, right, everyone that's still breathing is hoping for something better. Did you know that? No, people don't seek God, but everyone on planet Earth is hoping for something better at the end. sort of puts us all in the same boat, doesn't it? Not only do we go through this life under the sun and experience all the same bumps and all the same bruises, and even knowing God does not insulate us from that, but we all are sinners. We all are separated from God. We all have no hope in this life under the sun. And because of that, we're headed for death. But yet we're hoping, right? Hoping for something better at the end. This little phrase, a living dog is better than a dead lion. And in the life of the Bible, dogs were unclean animals. They weren't like the dogs in Midtown. Everybody loves their dogs, right? They love their dogs in Midtown. But in biblical times, dogs were unclean animals. Probably most of them didn't have a whole lot of hair, sort of scroungy looking, probably had a few diseases. And lions were considered to be royalty, were considered great, big, powerful. And the whole thing here is a living dog is better than a dead lion. It is. At least a little better. And the point is, is that as long as we have breath in our lungs, there's the opportunity 
there's the chance that this semi-charm kind of life might lead us to God. That these struggles, that this face-to-face that we will come with death, the hardships, the suffering, the tragedies, that as long as we at least have some breath in our lives, even if we're just a scroungy dog, there's a chance that we might come to faith in God. It's Acts 17, 26, and 28, right? God created us. That He made us. And He is our Creator. All of our Creators. And we're not far from knowing Him. You say, when I say death, is, is it friend or foe? Well, if death is like a surgeon and it cuts away those things, those ambitions that will cause me to waste my life, and it digs at the own, my own insecurities with anxiety and fear, and in cutting away at those things like a surgeon, it brings me life, and death is a blessing. And a death is sort of like the preacher that is good at laying things to heart. As Ecclesiastes says, better is the day of our death than the day of our birth. Right, when you're standing by the coffin at a funeral, things get really clear. And so if death really makes things really clear to you, and really clear about what matters in life and what doesn't, and brings you to faith in God, then death is a friend. Or maybe death is almost like an artist and helps you sketch out what really matters in the world. What what is it that I should be treasuring in life? You see, death lays to heart the importance of what matters under the sun. like nothing else can do. And you may ask, well, preacher, what about, we know how death lays to heart the importance of eternity, but what about now? What should death teach us about the enjoyment of everyday life? What should all these sufferings teach us about the everyday pleasures that God gives us? Listen at verse 7 through 10. The little subtitle is Enjoy Life with the One You Love. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let no oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge 
or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And so what death teaches us about these everyday things in life is this. Enjoy your daily bread. Enjoy eating and drinking what God has given you with your family and your friends. Enjoy food. Enjoy partying. Enjoy being with each other. But don't make your daily bread what is ultimate. Pursue holiness. Pursue right living. But don't put your hope in your right living. Enjoy deep life and love with your wife and your friends, but don't look to them for life. And whatever you find to do, do it well with all your might. Not for your fame and renown, but for God's fame and renown. So we as Christians, we, we ought to be the ones enjoying life to its fullest. Enjoying sitting down with your family, your, your kids, and just eating dinner with them. And laughing with them. Because death one day will take all that from us. But that still doesn't mean that we can't enjoy it. And be thankful and grateful for it. And treasure those memories. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy those small things in life because God has given them to us to enjoy. And when you work, whatever you do, do it with all your might. And that's not saying be a workaholic. That's not saying work 100 hours a week. It's saying, whatever you do, do it well. Not to build your kingdom. Not to build your palace. But to show the world how thankful you are for the gifts and talents that God has given you in your brief little life under the sun. You see, Ecclesiastes and Death especially, it brings a lot of humility to us. But it also brings a lot of gratitude. Right, so when you go home tonight, if you have kids or you don't, or you just have friends, and you give them a big hug or you tell them you love them, like death ought to make those things more special to us. And God has given them to us for our enjoyment. Listen at verse 11 through 13. This is a parable that comes at the end of the story to sort of drive home everything. And it says this, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like a fish that is taken in a net, an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when suddenly 
it falls on them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of the ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is a parable about what is true power. What is true hope in this life? Are you going to hope in the things of the world? Are you going to hope in being swifter than everybody else? Are you going to hope in being smarter than everybody else? Are you going to hope in your, in your strong horses? Are you going to hope in your riches and your intelligence? Are you going to hope in your knowledge? Are you going to hope in the things that the world hopes in? Is that what's going to get you through life under the sun? Is that what's going to get you through these bumps and these bruises in life? Because those things are like that, and they're gone. Car veers into your lane on the way home from church, and you're gone. And it's a parable about where is your hope? You see, in this parable, Jesus is this wise, poor man. You get that? Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's the man who is weak and comes and brings life by going to the cross. He delivers hope to the city, not through his strong might, not through the things of the world, not coming in and conquering with sword, but coming in, humbling himself, and dying the death that we should have died. You see, salvation comes not by striving. Salvation comes by resting in what Christ has done. You see, the world says, run, run, run on this treadmill of life and get ahead. And that's a foolish path because you will never, never find the finish line. But the Scriptures is this, that yes, we are all sinners, and yes, there is all suffering in the world, and yes, we are all broken, but this is real foolish story about God being born as a child in a manger, living the life that we should have lived and going to a Roman cross and being slaughtered in order to save the world. That is the hope to this vain life under the sun. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians again. I read it a few weeks ago. But it's so fitting to this 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to read 18 all the way through 30 and then we'll close. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through the wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. I mean, think about that. Me and Ben stand up here and we proclaim God's Word. Men just like you, sinners just like you, and God uses it to change people's lives, to save them from this vain life under the sun. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of a God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then it says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were from noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. And even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Christ, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So is death a friend or is it a foe? If death brings you to Christ, if suffering and hardship and tragedy bring you to the King of Kings, then it is friend. And I know with a group this size that some of you have gone through tremendous suffering. And I'm telling you, if it has helped you find Christ, if it has helped you find this wise man that is able to save the soul in the city, then it is joy. It is joy, even through the tears. Let me pray for us. Lord, we know that the Scripture teaches that death is the last great enemy that we have. And Christ has already broken the power of death. And it says that one day He will destroy death. And there will be no more death. Death will be done away with will be eradicated along with suffering and hardships and trial and the tears that are found in life under the sun. But Lord, until that day, until You come back again, God, our prayer for our church, our prayer for myself, our prayer for the people that are here, is that the struggling and the hardship and the anxiety that come with death and come with disease and come with tragedy, that they would push us to put our hope and confidence in a gracious and compassionate God who promises to remedy it all. Lord, and I pray that you would sustain us. God, may we encourage one another and all the more, God, as we live and do life 
in this world under the sun that is so full of vanity at times. Jesus, every Sunday, help us to come and see Christ anew and afresh. Help us to come and find this fullest message of the cross and say, that's where my hope lies. God, lay the Gospel to our hearts. God, and may death bring us into Your presence to know You so that we might say to live is Christ and dying is gain. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we come to the table tonight, I pray that we realize and understand that this table points us to how one day we will feast with Christ at His table. We will be in His house. And it will be a house where there won't be any more tears. There won't be any more suffering. There won't be any more deaths. There won't be any more tragedy. There won't be any more bumps and bruises. There won't be any more anxiety, fear, uncertainty, wrestling. We'll be with Him in His presence where there is joy forever and ever and ever. And this table is to point us to that day. Christ is generous to give us this table to remind us that His promise is good and that He will come back. And He will make new what has been broken because of our sin, because of my sin. He will make it all new. He will make it all new again. And our hearts long for that. Our hearts long to be back in Eden. Our hearts long to be back in that place where things are perfect and right. And the truth is, every lost person who does not know Christ, that's what his heart longs for too. He just doesn't know it. So this table reminds us of what Christ has done. It said on the night that Christ was betrayed, after he had given thanks, He took the bread and He says, this is My body which is broken for you. Broken for My sin and for your sin so that He might reconcile the world and us to Himself. In like manner, He took the cup and He says, this is a new covenant in My blood. And we know that the Scriptures teach that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for our sins. That without Christ's death, His burial and resurrection, there would be no hope of Eden. There would be no hope of returning there. So as we come to this table, we come with thanksgiving and gratitude. Even though it's a heavy sermon from Ecclesiastes, we come with a smile on our face because Christ promises to do what we can't do so that we might have joy. Let me pray for us. And Lord, we thank You for this table and we thank You for the Scriptures that we can hear. We also thank You for this picture that we have in front of us, Your table. And we thank You that as we come to the table, we're reminded, God, that You will bring peace on earth and goodwill to men one day. 
that you will complete what you started. And certainly as the sun will come up tomorrow, God. So as we come to the table, may we come with joy, may we come with worship, and may we come with thanksgiving, and may we come humbly, knowing that we can only come because Christ covers our sin. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you are here and maybe you don't know Christ, maybe you have questions about who Christ is and this gospel, this message that we've preached tonight, I would encourage you, don't, don't come to the table. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. He is the Savior. The table just points us to the Savior and what He has done. As you come forward, some will come to my left, some will come to my right. Come with friends, come with those you feel comfortable with. But come rejoicing. Come with a smile on your face because Christ, though we have lost it all, He did it all, and we get it all. Come, come to the table.